Anybody have any announcements out here today? Well, I'm going to mention that everybody keeps Cheryl in your prayers and Sally, both of them are sick, just really not feeling well. So we'll pray for them this morning, but keep them in your prayers. Heavenly Father, we come together in the name and the precious power and the blood of Jesus Christ that you have uh, saved us for your own called us out of darkness, transferred us into your glorious light, and that you are working all things together in our world and our individual lives for your glory and your goodness and your eventual total salvation. So Lord God, we pray that, that you might use us according to your purposes this morning. We ask your blessing on Pastor Ray. Um, and we ask that anyone who is supposed to be here this morning may be directed by the power of your irrefutable grace and love. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. I tell you, this, this devotional today, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be Mary and the encounters that she had with the angels at the tomb. The greatest message. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, Matthew 28, 5. On the third day after Christ's death, the Bible says, and behold, there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back, rolled back the stone from the door and he sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. And the guards shook for the fear of him, and they became like dead men. And as Mary looked into the tomb, she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then one of the angels who was sitting outside the tomb proclaimed the greatest message the world has ever heard, for he is not here, he's risen. Those few words changed the history of the universe. Darkness and despair died. Hope and anticipation was born into the hearts of men. With those few words, joy and new life now dawn in the hearts of all who believe. Don't leave Jesus in the manger, or on the cross, or in the tomb. He is alive, and even now he wants us to walk with him every day. The hope for today, Lord, may I always be found seeking you. When trials come, and there are those who do not understand, I will remember you were raised from the dead, and I know now that I am never alone. With that, let's rejoice. If you'd like to stand and join us. <clears throat>
Testament reading this morning is from the book of Proverbs, first chapter. <coughs> the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion, a wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you would stand with me, we can recite Psalm 23 as a prayer, congregational prayer. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Our New Testament reading today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed that the wounds on his hands and in his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe 
that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Will you join me in reading the, the Apostles' Creed? We're doing this in unison. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, our only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to deheaded. Third day he rose again, and 40 days later ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you, you created all. You made sense of everything. And sometimes we struggle to understand. Well, at least I do. But you, you do, you call on us to give back. You, you share with us. You, you, you make us joyful. You, make, you are there when we're sad. You're there when we're happy. And Lord, we need to give back, to share with others the blessings that you have given us and the word that you have given us. So Lord, we ask that the gifts we give today be blessed and be used in a way that is pleasing in your sight. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.
Good morning. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again, and 40 days later ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. That is the original Apostles' Creed. It dates all the way back to the second century. It was originally called the Old Roman Creed, based on the Great Commission. Four words have been added, and 40 days later. Those are immensely important. And we're going to talk about what Jesus did in those 40 days. 40 days is all about the Great Commission. Let us pray. Father God, tune our hearts to you this morning. Give us ears to hear eyes to see, and hearts and minds to comprehend your great grace and your plan of salvation for this entire world. Bless every word this morning, Father, to your glory and the exhortation of all that are here. In Jesus' name, amen. Show us slide one, please. We have entered the 40-day portal between Jesus' resurrection and ascension, where Jesus begins preparing his disciples for the Great Commission. Quite often the Bible does not state the obvious, but this 40 days is all important. This time of preparation will culminate in the apostolic global ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, preached to the ends of the earth. That global ministry continues to this day, and you and I and the rest of the body of Christ, we're not done yet. It could be argued that at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, he had far less than 12 disciples. Luke says a large number of his followers stood at a distance watching as Jesus was crucified. Standing at a distance does not make you a follower of Jesus Christ. John says that only Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, Mary Magdalene, and John the Beloved were at the cross five Counting Mary Magdalene, only two disciples were at the cross. Only two were willing to stand by his side. But within 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and ascension, that number grew to more than 500. At Pentecost, 120 stellar disciples of Christ appeared. But there were 12 who turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. By the time of Jesus' ascension, a disciple and a follower were the same thing. Even today, a disciple and a follower are the same thing. You can't be a disciple of Jesus and not be a follower. Nor can you be a follower of Jesus and not be a disciple. Anything other we call a nominal Christian or a fence sitter. Forty days in scripture always points to a time of preparation. For instance, Noah and the flood. Forty days and forty nights prepares eight people to repopulate the earth 
and begin a new Eden. Men and women walking with God. Jesus was sequestered to the wilderness for 40 days in preparation for his earthly ministry. Moses was sequestered to Mount Sinai for 40 days in preparation to receive God's Ten Commandments. So the next 40 days, let you and I prepare our hearts for a new Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday is May 28th. Let's get ready. Let's prepare our hearts for a new outpouring of God's Holy Spirit power to enable us to push back the darkness in this world. And if you hadn't noticed, it's getting pretty dark. And how do we do that? We know how. We must be in the Word and in prayer. So today, let's dig down deep. Let's dig down deep into the foundations of why we believe and what we believe. Let's shore up our apologetics. And I know you're thinking, okay, I've heard that word before, but uh, remind me what it means. Apologetics is the reasoning or justification as to why we believe what we believe. And we are commanded to do this. Slide two, please. From 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16, from the NIV. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And what is our hope? And why do we believe it? We believe what we believe because the Word of God is alive and active. Alive and active in our hearts and lives. Hebrews 4.12 We believe what we believe because he who is the Word has taken up a residence in our hearts and lives. We believe what we believe because the Lord Jesus is the Word of God. John 1.1. Slide number three, please. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 5 from the NLT. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We believe what we believe because the Word of God is made alive to us by the rhema of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is also called the witness of the Holy Spirit. Rhema. The Holy Spirit witnesses or testifies to our hearts and minds that God's truth is the only truth, the eternal truth. The rhema of the Holy Spirit takes the ink off the page of Scripture and makes it come alive in our hearts, our souls. The rhema of the Holy Spirit imparts faith. And that faith changes our hearts and minds, resurrects us from the grave of self, and makes us alive to Christ, alive to his love. It is the rhema of the Holy Spirit that changes our hearts and minds and brings us to repentance, helps us acknowledge our rebellion, and encourages us to obediently submit to God's law of love. And what is repentance? A 180-degree about-face. Repentance is to stop following our fleshly desires and focus on our time and energies on following Jesus. Literally, repentance is returning to God. Isaiah 30, 15. There are some translations that say return to God in place of repentance and rest. It is like the story of the prodigal son. We stop going 
going our own way. We return home to a loving father who forgives us completely. Apologetics. If someone asked you why you believe in Jesus, what would you answer? If someone asked you, what's Christianity all about? How would you answer? How about this? Slide four. These are the words of St. Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 8, the NLT. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Does this sound like the Apostles' Creed? And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. And last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Do we identify with Paul? I certainly do. Paul obviously wishes he had been born early enough that like the rest of the disciples, he could have personally walked and talked with Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry, beheld him face to face. Oh, he beheld Christ face to face. It blinded him. But he wanted to be present, walking with him in his daily ministry which he did. But what did Jesus say about this? Being born at the wrong time or the right time. Slide five, please. Matthew 13, 16 through 17, NLT. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see. But they didn't see it. And they longed to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. Guess what? This verse applies to you and me today. Right here, right now. In this verse, Jesus is speaking to those who were at the beginning of the kingdom age. At Jesus' advent came the kingdom age. And here we are 2,000 years later witnessing that kingdom come to fruition as a litany of prophecies unfold right before our eyes. Every day, something, some new prophecy is coming to light in Israel. Here we are just a breath away from the rapture of the church but since we are so close to Jesus' return, let's dig down in the scriptures and shore up what we believe about Jesus' resurrection. And why? Because without Jesus' resurrect resurrection, you and I have no hope. No hope. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, his death did not atone for our sins. If he didn't rise from the dead, we have no hope of eternal life. Either Jesus' death conquered sin in the grave or his death conquered nothing. But who witnessed Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection? Who saw Jesus resurrected from the dead with their own eyes? Who were the eyewitnesses? Let's go down the list. Slide six, please. Who saw the risen Jesus first? According to Matthew, Matthew 28, 9, Jesus appears first to Mary Magdalene and the Mary who is the wife of Cleopas, the mother of James and Joseph. Now remember, Cleopas was Joseph's brother. According to Mark 16, 7, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, you've heard Salome, it's actually in Hebrew, Salome, 
go to Jesus' tomb and are encountered by an angel who instructs them, go tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of them to Galilee. Why would the angel specify, including Peter? Think on that. That's important. We'll touch on it later. Slide 7. According to Luke 24, 15 through 18, Jesus appears to Cleopas and another as they walk to Emmaus. Remember last week I questioned you. Could that second apostle on Emmaus Road, or disciple, could that have been Cleopas' wife? That's pure conjecture because here's the answer. This verse actually rules out the wife of Cleopas as the other disciple because, actually, Matthew clears it up. He puts her at the tomb with Mary Magdalene. So there's no way she could have been on the road to Emmaus. Are you confused yet? <laughs> According to John 2014, Jesus appears first to Mary Magdalene. But consider this. John is likely focusing his attention on Mary Magdalene. But chances are excellent that she relayed to him personally her account. And therefore he recorded it. But who saw Jesus first? John gives a detailed account of Jesus not only encountering Mary, but dialoguing with Mary Magdalene. Luke and St. Paul specifically address the issue of who was first to see the risen Christ. Matthew 28, 9 says Jesus suddenly met them, talking about the group of women who were at the tomb, as they are en route to Galilee sometime after they had learned that Jesus was not in the tomb. We know Mary Magdalene and Mary the wife of Cleopas are part of this group because Matthew names them in the very first verse of that chapter. Matthew makes no distinction as to whether Mary Magdalene saw Jesus first or the other Mary. We have to assume that the other Mary, Mary the wife of Cleopas, saw Jesus after he had spoken to Mary Magdalene. Note there's no conflict in these scriptures. Scripture verifies scripture. These four accounts all happen the same day. Rather than conflict, we have a careful harmony of the Gospels concerning what is truly important. And what's important? Number one, at least two women met Jesus at or near the tomb. Number two, a group of women met Jesus as they were en route to Galilee. Number three, two others met him on the road to Emmaus. It was a busy Sunday morning for our Lord Jesus. It's obvious that the gospel writers did not consult each other regarding their separate accounts. There was no effort to make the stories identical. In fact, the fact that they are not identical gives them authenticity. No four humans would ever tell the same story with the exact same details unless it was a conspiracy. Additionally, none of the gospel writers nor Paul contradict John's statement that Mary Magdalene was the first to see Jesus. And Mark says the same thing, however, that particular passage from Mark is not found in the oldest manuscripts. What's truly important here is that God has made it perfectly clear that women were and are supremely involved in the new covenant. And that women were and are equally important to men because these women were the first to be commissioned by Jesus and his angels to tell of the resurrection. So now that we've dissected and analyzed resurrection Sunday morning and afternoon, let's talk about that evening. 
We know from Scripture that Cleopas and another disciple have encountered Jesus en route to Emmaus. They sit down to eat with him, and once they sit down to break bread, they recognize Jesus, and he disappears. We also know that these two disciples beat feet back to Jerusalem as fast as they could to tell the rest of the disciples that they had seen Jesus. And just as they arrive, Jesus teleports himself into their midst. Slide eight, please. Luke 24, 35 through 43. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they recognized him as he was breaking bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself suddenly was standing there among them. Peace to you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Slide nine, please. Jesus said, why are you frightened? Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure I'm not a ghost, because ghosts don't have bodies, as you see I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still, they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. And then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. Now let's talk about eight days later. Slide 10, please. John 20, 24 through 31. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Slide 11. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. This time, Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said, Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wounds in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Have you noticed in Scripture... Nowhere does it say that Thomas actually put his hands into any of Jesus' wounds. When you're standing in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus, we don't need the physical. His presence is all-consuming. His presence is ultimate reality. I'll guarantee you that Jesus did this very same thing for Peter on Resurrection Sunday. Jesus encountered Peter exclusively and dramatically, yet we don't read anything about it. Peter was not ready to receive reconciliation. Thomas was. And Peter was not willing to receive reconciliation for any other reason that he was totally consumed with his failure of denying Jesus. He felt completely unworthy. But we'll get into that next week. That's a teaser. That's next week's sermon. So what is the Great Commission and who are called to fulfill it? What is the Great Commission? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority, that's important, in heaven and on earth. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
I recently read a story about Rick Warren and Saddleback Church. Saddleback Church is the largest Southern Baptist church in the country. Saddleback Church has been expelled from the Southern Baptist Convention because they are ordaining women as pastors and elders. Presently, one of Saddleback's pastors for their regular pulpit rotation is a woman. Hallelujah. When asked why Saddleback was now ordaining women, Warren answered, During COVID, I did a deep study of Pentecost and church history and concluded there were women at Pentecost. How could this not have been? And they too were filled with the Spirit and began to praise God in languages they had not learned and preached right alongside the men. And if you look at the Great Commission, Jesus said, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. Warren said there are four verbs in the Great Commission. Go, make, baptize, and teach. Women are to go. Women are to make disciples. Women are to baptize. You know, in Rick Warren's church, if you lead someone to Christ, man or woman, if you lead them to Christ, you get to baptize them. Been a lot of women baptizing people in his church. I think they have over like 50,000 baptisms in the past many years. More baptisms than any other church on record. Warren continued, on that day at Pentecost, we know women were in the upper room. We know women were filled with the Holy Spirit. We know women were preaching in languages other people couldn't understand and preaching to a mixed audience. It wasn't just men. Women were preaching on the day of Pentecost. How do we know that? Because Peter felt obliged to explain it. Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. He says to the crowd, These people aren't drunk. What you see unfolding was prophesied by the prophet Joel. It was going to happen. Women were preaching on the very first day of the church. Peter explained what Joel predicted. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. All flesh means all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. So say what you will about Rick Warren. He's been a dynamic force in the evangelical church for decades. His book, The Purpose Driven Life, has influenced the church worldwide. Actually, there are those who say printed books, of printed books, his is the best-selling theological book, second only to the Bible. The man's had an impact. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. I've preached this before. The purest definition of prophesy is simply to speak for God, in which case we should all be prophesying. Speak for God by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And according to the prophet Joel, there are no gender restrictions when it comes to speaking for God. Back to Rick Warren, he says, from the day of Pentecost forward, everybody in the church gets to play. Everybody gets to preach. Everybody gets to speak for God. Honestly, I was on the fence about this and uh, this subject of women in the pulpit. I, uh, my wife will confirm that. I used to say, when have you seen a dynamic woman in the pulpit? When have you seen a truly successful church with a woman in the pulpit? There's not many, but Rick Warren's words have changed my heart. Uh, <clears throat> and you may find that a little interesting because I was raised four square. 
four squares said women in the pulpit from day one. But um, after reading his, his words on Pentecost, I have to agree, there's, there's no reason, uh, God help John MacArthur, but there's no reason for women not to be behind the pulpit teaching and preaching. It wasn't just men preaching at Pentecost. How do we know that? <laughs> Peter explained it. The prophet Joel. I, uh, I must admit, when I was uh, a teenager, I was probably 19. We were in a, uh, our church used to be big on once a month rallies and all the churches in the area would gather together on a Monday evening. And I, <clears throat> I remember a, a spirit-filled meeting and a 10-year-old girl stood up and prophesied and everybody there knew it was the word of the Lord. So uh, don't tell me Joel's prophecy hasn't been in effect for the past 2,000 years. We're still in the church age. The church age, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> began at Pentecost and will not end until the church is raptured. We cannot, Rick Warren's words, we cannot fulfill the Great Commission without all hands on deck. Men, women, boys and girls, everyone preaching. We can't fulfill that commission without everyone working together. Remember when you witness, when you preach for Christ, the way you preach is how you live, not by what you say. St. Francis preached to everyone all the time and if necessary, use words. We have to fulfill the Great Commission together. Men and women side by side, hand in hand. Everyone has the responsibility to carry out this mission. Everyone, young and old. Let's pray. Father God, rest your Holy Spirit on every heart and life here this morning. Speak to our spiritual ears. Remind us, Lord, that time is short. You will be returning very soon. And those who do not hear your gospel will be lost. Salvation, number one, is to bring us into right relationship with Father God. Number two, our salvation is to be multiplied. We are to preach what we know to everyone we meet, for time is short. Help us, Lord, empower us. Get our hearts ready for a new Pentecost, this coming Pentecost Sunday. Impart your spirit to this church on the coming Pentecost Sunday, the way you did next, too. We would love to see tongues of fire. We would love to see people prophesying in languages they don't know. But more than that, we would love to feel the power, the total consuming power of your Holy Spirit. Make it so, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. For my benediction this morning, I'd like to read to you from Eugene Peterson, A Place of Prayer. Psalm 11, verse 1. I've already run for dear life straight to the arms of God. King David's life is the most exuberant story in all the scriptures. 
maybe the most exuberant in all of the history of the world. It is also the most extensively narrated story in our Bible. We know about, more about David than any other person in the biblical communities of faith. The person in Scripture who had the most extensively told story is the same person who's shown to be the most at prayer. He was a shepherd, guerrilla fighter, court musician, politician, and a king. His entire life was lived in a sacred ordinary. An ordinary we are apt to mistakenly call the secular. But the regular, the secular, the ordinary life is rightly a life of prayer. Blessings to you all. soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior, and more abundant and free. upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and
Go in peace.